Welcome to the Calibre podcast, presented by Watchers of Switzerland. I'm Faisal Terry, and in this episode, we're going international. In this edition, Brian Duffy, CEO of the Watchers of Switzerland Group, sits down with James Lambden, founder of the New York City-based Analog Shift, to discuss his obsession with cars and a fascination with watches, which ultimately led to the creation of Analog Shift. This episode of Calibre podcast was recorded in the offices of Analog Shift in New York City. So hello everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in to our latest podcast. This is the eighth podcast we have in the series of podcasts we're doing from uh, Watchers of Switzerland. Uh, everyone's been different, everyone's been special and, and today is very special. Uh, first of all, we're coming from New York. Uh, we're on uh, East uh, 55th Street next to Lexington Avenue. You'll hear a bit of the New York uh, traffic noise uh, outside probably as we go through. And we're in uh, the, the studio of uh, Analog Shift. Uh, Analog Shift are one of the renowned and very respected uh, uh, companies that, that deal in vintage watches. And that's our subject today to talk about vintage watches. And I'm delighted to be joined by the founder of Analog Shift, who's uh, James Lambden. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. This, this is where James works. He, he calls it uh, a workplace, but we're sitting back in comfortable old chairs <laughs> surrounded by wonderful watches and artifacts. And I've done something wrong in life. Well, this is what you call work. It's, you know, if it ever stops being fun, I'll stop doing it. Yeah, good for you. You've always got this great uh, smile on your face. So you, you clearly really enjoy what uh, what you do. Indeed. So you are uh, one of the most uh, renowned people in the world of uh, vintage watches. What got you into it in the first place? Well, you know, I think uh, it, that for me, the entry point to watches was really the story. Uh, I think that what's so interesting about watch collecting in general is that there's so many different points of entry into the hobby, whether it's having some luxury, whether it's a design or a mechanical element, uh, whether it's for investment, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, or whether there's an emotive element. And for me, that's really what it was. Um, I think I inherited my interest in nicer things from my grandfather who uh, passed a number of years back. We were very close. He had a lot of nice things in his life from uh, his wardrobe to his music collection to his art. Uh, not necessarily as a, a sign of wealth, but he collected objects as uh, mementos and as little uh, just talismans of his life. Yeah. And so everything he had came with a story. And I remember as a kid, he would uh, show me something and he always told the best stories about uh, what it was and where it was and how he came to have it. Maybe it was made up, maybe it wasn't, but yeah. it really created this uh, sort of mysterious allure around a thing. Yeah. And uh, although we were very close, there were large parts of his life that I was not privy to. Uh, and when he passed, I began exploring his life through his things. And without him around anymore to tell me those stories, I sort of began digging into them and, and learning about those objects for myself. and learning what their stories were and trying to figure out why this man who I admired so greatly might have had them. Mm. And uh, I think I was predisposed to mechanical things. I had a, a long running interest in, in cars and you know cutlery and gear and gadgets. And so watches was a pretty natural thing for me to glom onto right out of the box. Yep. Uh, inherited some of his wristwatches and without him being there, I sort of had to learn about the watches to try and learn about why he might have had them. And that's where I went down the rabbit hole. Yep. Okay. I mean, and I, I think it's great to hear that, you know, because it's something that uh, 
you know, in, in the world of watches, we, we, we love people to understand just how symbolic having a watch and, and having a watch passed down to you. Uh, with one of our sales guys last night from a, a new store that's opening in Soho and asked him his favourite watch and it was a very similar story. It was one that was given to him by his father. His father was an immigrant uh, here, uh, saved a lot of money to finally buy himself an Omega Seamaster and he'd no sooner bought it that he gave it to his son when he, when he graduated. Brilliant. So just the symbolism and the emotion and the memory of his, uh, of I, his father. I think it's very uh, it's significant that you know, we as people, as humans, as, uh, have the ability to connect an object with that kind of emotional yep. element. And it's it's really kind of silly, but it's also, it's really brilliant. And yep. I, I think that that's part of what makes collecting anything so significant. Yep, yep. And I think I think you've, emotion, sensitivity, all of that is what makes the collector, obviously, Major Grandfather, the, uh, the, the great guy that uh, you, you, you clearly know, knew him to be. Um, and, uh, you know, something else I should share about James, I and mean, I was thinking about your epitaph, you know, he loved the uh, fine whiskey. Oh, yes. Um, well, you're Scottish and I love Scotch, so we have, yep. that, in, we have that in common. Yeah. Um, I think that the watches really acted as a gateway. I mean, truthfully, I, I went down that rabbit hole and, and got much more into watches than he ever was. Yeah. But it also opened the door to my interest in other quality things. Yep. And, you know, I like to tell my friends that that was the summer I stopped wearing sneakers and cargo shorts yeah. and started looking at, you know, buying nicer clothes and maybe some wingtips and uh, became an old man in my early twenties very quickly, yeah. uh, stopped buying disposable things and started buying one really great thing. And then multiples of that great thing because I have an affliction. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, you know, that's what we always say with watches. It really is addictive when you, when you get to know these wonderful timepieces. Yeah. And, uh, and you're no exception. So that, that's going to be your epitaph. You love beautiful cars, you love fine whiskey, and you love watches. Yeah, and, and it, but about... it's really not about the luxury for me at all. I mean, I like to think about the my little corner of the vintage world is luxury with a lowercase l. Yep. Um, it's absolutely a luxury to have these things or have the ability to, to acquire these things. But I don't, it, I don't think it's flash. I don't think it's um, posing at all. It's just appreciating yeah. uh, some of the best things that that we can produce as, as people. Yep, that's a great way to describe it. So vintage watches, so first of all, for our, our listeners, let's define exactly what we mean by vintage. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's a, a highly subjective term. And yep. every day that goes by, something becomes a little bit older. So it's also a moving target. Uh, when I started uh, Analog Shift, I sort of put a rough parameter that vintage had to be pre-1983. Um, partially because I was born the next year and couldn't consider myself vintage, but also because uh, if we're using Rolex, which I'm sure we'll talk about a yep. bit more as well, as a uh, as a benchmark for the vintage uh, community, 19, the early 1980s was a very transitional period for Rolex, and they started moving from matte dials into glossy dials, yep. which for a lot of collectors at the time uh, meant a turning from the tool watch to the luxury item. Which isn't quite true, but it made sense at the time. So I said, pre-1983 is vintage. You know, from the, four, the end of the Second World War to 1983, that's vintage. And anything before that is antique. Of course, this is all subjective. And since that time, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, I've come to realize that there are some sort of neo-vintage watches, some contemporary classics, if you mm -hmm. will, that were produced later in the 80s and into the early 90s, which still have 
really all the hallmarks of a vintage watch, an acrylic crystal, tritium luminescent material, things like that. So I don't think there's a particular age statement. I don't think there's a particular year cutoff. Mm. I think it's more of a, a set of design uh, criteria and maybe some values in terms of how the watches were made. Yep. And that's why I think there are still new watches being made with a sort of vintage mindset. And I'm not necessarily talking about uh, artificially aged loom or, or that sort of thing in the homage tribute segment, although there's some good ones. Um, but more about how they're made, why they're made, what they're paying homage to. And I think that there are, in fact, sort of new vintage watches being made today in, in some areas of the industry. Yep. But for the most part, Analog Shift deals with things uh, made up until the early 90s in general. Okay. And actually, I know we are going to look at uh, some watches later. Uh, one of them, your, your Olex, uh, Rolex uh, date just there, I have and I bought new. Classic, <laughs> exactly yeah, did that you? model. So <laughs> I have to admit, I'm, uh, I'm part of that vintage category overall. Yeah. Um, so, but the frenzy, I, mean, I think we could describe it as a frenzy these days on the on vintage watches. Where and when did it really begin? Yeah, mm. I, I think that uh, the idea of collecting wristwatches was probably created spontaneously by the Italians sometime in the 1980s. Mm. Um, it was a very different marketplace in terms of what was in demand at the time. Of course, I wasn't collecting in those days, but uh, I've become friendly with a number of people who were either professionals or, or, or collectors at the time. And the styles that were very popular at that time were uh, very small. Generally, uh, American watches were, were actually some of the hottest things to collect. Yep. Uh, the Hamiltons and Elgins and Walthams and Gruens of, of the sort of mid-century and early uh, Art Deco periods were really very hot as well as Rolex bubble backs yep. um, you know, from the mid-century as well. I think from Italy, it probably jumped to Japan um, as things are known to do. And the Japanese ran with it and really created a culture around vintage uh, that was very significant before coming sort of back to Europe and the US. And I think that's what's very interesting is that the community has evolved from there uh, very organically and uh, sort of in, in a wildfire scenario. Today, there are new people coming into the hobby from all walks of life and a lot of young people. And I think that's probably the most interesting. Of course, that has also really changed the styles and the trends in terms mm -hmm. of size and material that become you know popular in the moment and a lot of those early american wristwatches or pocket watches or bubble backs that were the rage uh in the 80s are not particularly in demand today although cyclically we might see a return yeah yeah interesting but the italians are really famous for tasting and, and, and on another another of the podcasts we talked about at Daytona and how probably again it was Italy that, that created the, the mad craze, craze about the uh, they Daytona were the, uh, They were the first ones to identify it, they were the yep. first ones to nickname it, and they were the first ones to monetize it. Yep. And, and apparently during those, and I think again we're back at the 90s I guess. Yeah, early 80s, 90s. Early 80s, 90s. 80s, 90s uh, you could get Daytonas here no problem, but you couldn't get them in Italy. So, and of course there wasn't the internet and the travel and opportunities like that so people were just mailing back and forward buy me whatever you can of a oh yeah of a rolex detona and uh well there's no there's no question that the internet and uh, social media has changed this sure. marketplace forever sure and you know how big the market is today in vintage 
Uh, yeah, we've put together some numbers for the global auction market. Uh, this represents you know, all the major and some of the minor auction houses around the world. And I think in 2017, we saw about $325 million yep. being spent in vintage watches. Uh, that's probably up about $50 million over 2016. Yep. And of course, that does not represent uh, private transactions or uh, you know dealers like myself, yep. uh, which probably would add quite a bit yep. um, to that number. And interestingly, uh, just for comparison, $325 million uh, in vintage sales last year is about 2% of what the equivalent number in the art category would be yep. uh, last year. So a significant but very small piece of the uh, collector pie. Yep, uh, but uh, fast growing um, overall. And as you see, the internet's uh, been the real game changer. Yeah, and I think that what's fascinating is I've read numerous places that vintage watches are the uh, largest growing category of, of collectibles from a monetary standpoint following wine and automobiles. Oh, well. And uh, I think I mentioned again in a previous uh, podcast that uh, I collect guitars. Yeah. And uh, you, There'll uh, be no singing with me, I'm afraid. Oh, really? I was enjoying I, your uh, serenades. I'm, with... I'm, I'm ready to go and it all. <laughs> I'm sure Nobody that, wants to hear yeah. this. But what I really want is bad singers to sing along with me. <laughs> try, try and make me, a, make me sound a bit better. But uh, <laughs> one of the, I mean, the older gu uh, guitars are actually better. And, you know, and I know that's one of the debates and watches that they're constantly technically getting better, getting more, you know, magnetic proof and so on. And the, the te technological developments are fantastic. But you have that issue of looking. I mean, even the old detoners, you're looking back before the forty-one thirty. They were, um, they were manual. They, yeah. they do feel very, uh, very light. Well, I think that's where my company's name came from. I mean, I picked it because it sounded cool. Yeah. But also, uh, it was sort of about a shift to an analog. Uh, way of thinking. And yep. frankly, I didn't quite know what I was going to do with that name when I bought the URL and founded the company. I, I came from the car business. Yep. Uh, my first love was, was cars. Uh, I thought I might do something with vintage cars and I decided actually to shelve that and make it just my hobby, um, which I get to enjoy and, and purely enjoy and not think about the business side. Yep. Um, but I think that there is certainly a parallel with, with, with guitars, with cars, with anything that can be done in an analog way. And while watches are, I mean, mechanical watches are entirely superfluous uh, to begin with. None of us need this. A yep. much better timekeeper with a, a quartz watch or our, our phone. Yep. Um, but there's really a beautiful, you know, thing that, that happens between a, a person and their mechanical watch that they have to keep alive, whether it's by yep. moving their wrist or winding that crown. Yep. And uh, and falling in love in the process. Yeah. But, um, so, I mean, any particular eras that you would look back at your favorite eras of, uh, of, of watches? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I came into the collector hobby very solidly looking at diving watches and tool watches from the okay. 1960s and 70s. That, for me, was the point of entry. Um, you know, I, I inherited these watches from my grandfather, but then as soon as I was bitten, which was about 10 seconds later, yep. um, I wanted my own watch, my own first watch to sort of <clears throat> commemorate that moment. And I had been reading uh, uh, novels by a man named Clive Cussler. You'll find him in the bestseller list uh, regularly and in every airport bookstore. Uh, he writes escapist fiction novels. They are brilliant. And his protagonist wore this watch that had seared itself into my mind, even as a, a 
well, probably a 10 year old when I started reading the books. And all I knew it was that it was a orange faced Doxa diving watch. Right. I'd read those words on the pages of his yep. books, even as a child. And then this light bulb went off in my head and I said, you know, I've, I gotta have one of those, but I didn't even know what it looked like. And the internet wasn't what it is today. And I really, it took me a while to find what that even was. Yep. Um, so I started with the diving watches, uh, with that sort of lead in. Um, I really came to appreciate pre-war design very, very quickly. So although it's a little bit out of style at the moment, um, I'm very interested in art deco design, um, interested in, in smaller, slightly more refined oh. uh, cases, precious metals. So that's sort of the pre-war era, there's that booming sports watch uh, category from yep. the, the end of the Second World War to the, you know, let's say the early mid '70s, and then there's that contemporary classic era, which is probably the end of the '70s up until the early '90s. Yep. Um, so a little bit of all of it for me, I yeah. suppose. But they are very defined eras. I mean, since it's yeah. modern modern, which has changed very little, actually, very little. and it's uh, a lot bigger it's now. Looking appeal, yeah. But it's still the but same. It still, still looks like the, the same beautiful thing. But then all the classic watches, as you say, pre-war. Um, Oh, well, uh, great. And um, some of the uh, uh, your own preferences and uh, an explanation, some of the terms that you, you hear about when you start uh, looking at the vintage watches, doing a bit of research. What's your view on polishing? Mm. Yeah, I think that the most significant thing uh, in the growing watch market today is to make sure that the knowledge about why you're buying it, what you're buying and how you're buying it um, is shared. That yep. this is something that's very significant and, and frankly, something I spend quite a bit of time talking about. So polishing is, uh, you know, really a, a confused term today. Polishing is not inherently bad, you know, and you have to think about these watches were not precious to people for the most part. Uh, so if they scratched it, you would do one of two things. You would leave the scratch on it yep. or you'd get it polished out. And there's really no problem with polishing that scratch out. The, the problem comes when you over polish and when you lose the lines of a case, when you lose the bevels or you lose the, the crispness on the bottom of the lug, yep. that's where the problem is. So polishing inherently is not a bad thing. Over polishing is. Yep. Uh, I would encourage people to really explore uh, what an unpolished watch usually looks like. It usually means it's beat. Yep. And Unpolished does not mean factory fresh, new old stock condition. Yep. Uh, usually means pretty banged up. Personally, I don't mind that. I like a little bit of wear and, and character on my watches. Yep. Um, means I don't have to be precious with them. Yep. Uh, at the same time, it, it's uh, it's concerning when people will sort of throw a great watch to the side because somebody says, "Oh, it's it's been polished." No, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, and again, it's got to come down to your own preference. You've got to look at it. Does it still look good? Does it still got great character? Absolutely. Uh, overall. And patina, another big, yeah, another big uh, subject. Patina is probably, I use that word more than any other word yep. on a daily basis. Patina, of course, referring to uh, characteristics of aging, discoloration. Um, it's a very, very preferential thing. Yep. One man's patina is another man's damage. Yep. Uh, patina can be very light and even, which is generally considered universally preferable. Um, but I've got clients who like watches that look like they went through a lawnmower. Yeah. You know, and and 
one one man's water damage is another man's tropical yeah. <laughs> characteristics. Um, I think I, I swing on that. Uh, I like a little a little bit of uh, a little bit of wear and tear, maybe even some discoloration or some spidering, which is something that can happen yeah. to uh, glossy dials. But it's really uh, sort of watch to watch. Yeah. Um, the patina is a very personal thing. And I don't think that anyone, myself as a dealer or the auction houses or the blogs or an influencer on social media should dictate what what constitutes good patina and not. Because yeah. I have seen some watches that I probably wouldn't have looked at twice myself that will get someone else's heart beating yeah. faster. And it's a very personal thing. Yeah. And, and like George Bamford was saying, uh, there is a... There's an allowance now for the customization. I think that's, he's yeah. absolutely right. And that's part of what makes vintage so interesting is that every single piece is different. different. Yeah. I can show you four of these date just, yeah. same series, and every single one has lived a different life. Yeah. So whether it's a little bit of crazing here or a little bit of wear here, a little bit of puffiness there on the loom, you yeah. have four, four or five watches that that every single one is different and that is a personal choice that's a custom choice and it's an even better way to uh, define your personal style is to pick a patina that you can jive with personally yeah and I, again as the common thread of always saying it's about your pe personal taste it's what floats your boat and it all uh, but you clearly like an aging uh, overall but you still want to have a clarity and yeah yeah I mean yeah. I, again I like a little bit of everything um, I have a fortunate position of of working in the business from a vintage standpoint uh, professionally, but I also semi-professionally write about modern yep. watches, which gives me a perspective and an access to the industry at large. And I love watches. So sometimes I want them crisp and clean. Most of the time I want them with character. I always want them with story. Yeah. And, uh, and, and on that, what about engravings? What about if you're getting a real story of, yeah. I own this and this is why I got it? That's fantastic. Um, very personal as well. Yeah. I tend to find engravings really interesting. Yeah. Uh, because that is, it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier. There's a personal story with that watch. Yeah. Even if it was just a flash moment, you know, to, to Jim from Tim Christmas 1965. Yeah. Might not have really meant anything, but maybe it did. Yeah. And we may never know those stories, but isn't it awesome to yeah. just try and figure it out yeah. or to, to imagine what it might be? Uh, I have a collector, a friend of mine, who started his collection, not with any particular direction in terms of brand or style, but all he collected at the beginning were watches with engravings, wow. particularly watches that were... Uh, military gifts, so watches that were coming from a loved one, a sweetheart, a wife, yep. um, to soldiers in the First and Second World War. And, you know, some of these watches were junk. But when you turn every single one over and there's an yeah, engraving on it, it becomes yeah. uh, very, I mean, it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And I, so I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. Um, we do some engraving on some of our watches for some of our clients, and I'm into that too. Yeah. But uh, it's not for everybody. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever actually seen the uh, to Jack Love Mar Marilyn? I to to which particular a particular watch or just in general? It was a, I think it was a famous one uh, given to Jack Kennedy. Oh yes, he only oh, had, yes absolutely. He only had it for a few days apparently, but it was to Jack Love Mar uh, Love Always Marilyn. Marilyn, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. That yeah. was a. Uh, 
I think those ones stand out. Just a wee bit. A wee bit. Yeah. Like there was another one last November, I think, that uh, kind of made a big deal as well. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, other one. Newman, the that other one. That other one. Yeah. And original papers, a big deal to you? Not at all. No? Not at all. Um, word of warning to everybody who's shopping for their first vintage watch. Um, they're not significant uh, in terms of the quality of the piece. Mm -hmm. It's a nice cherry on top, and it can certainly move value. Um Upwards, that is. But again, most of that stuff was tossed aside. It was not considered. Now, you wouldn't buy an entry-level watch and yeah. think of throwing away the packaging or the box or the papers. But, you know, at the time, it just wasn't, it really wasn't thought of. Yeah. So I don't care about papers. What I care about is a quality watch. And I don't like to use the word original. Because unlike a car, which has every major component, yeah. serial, VIN stamped, watches at, you know produced during the 40s and 50s and 60s and really up until the 80s were batch manufactured. So cases were made over here and the movements were made over here and the dials were made over here and they were put in bins and they were assembled as necessary yeah. um, You know when the orders came in. So original is not really a word that I like to use. Authentic, correct. Those are words we yeah. live by. Papers, you know, it's nice, but it doesn't make or break a great watch to me. Yeah, great. And uh, restoration, does it be? So this is, this is gonna get more significant, the yeah. restoration question going forward, because let's face it, some of these watches are getting pretty old. Yeah. Um, restoration inherently is not a bad thing either, um, whether it's restoring the luminous material or recutting a case. Yeah. You know, I think there's many degrees and levels in which you can restore a watch. I do believe in over-restoring a watch, making it better than new, and uh, I'm not into that. However, some sensitive touch-up or some sensitive restoration to areas that have been worn down uh, or have been damaged, it's fine. What's important, as always, is to be transparent about that yep. and not to... Uh, have those things present without knowing about it. Yeah. Whether you're the buyer or the seller. Yeah. And the watch has to work, right? It's, it's got to keep time. It's got to do what it was intended to do. It's better when it does. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that uh, with the volume of watches that are coming through our shop, obviously our inventory and client watches take priority with my watchmaking team. Yeah. So some of my watches don't run that great, but it's because yep. I'm at the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I figure as long as it's running, yeah, uh, we'll deal with the accuracy later. Yeah, obviously for my clients it's paramount. Yeah, and uh, do you get a preference bracelets or beat up old old leather straps? So it's a, I think it's watch to watch. Yeah, um, I think there is a, a love for the jangly old bracelet as my colleague Jason Heaton would yeah. put it. Uh, I do like them uh, a little jangly. Yeah, um, but I think it depends on the piece. You know, I think most diving watches wear better on bracelets. Yeah, but I certainly have plenty on. On straps as well. Yep, but the most important thing, and very clearly from from all of what you're seeing, is the dial when it comes down to it. That's what really gives it the character and the story well, and the look. Well, that's that's a yes and no. Um, the dial is generally regarded as the most important part of the watch. I, I might I might say that the case is the most important, um, partially because when you have over polished a case. There's really no way to get it back without 
you know, gluing some new metal on there using a laser welder and then recutting it. And yep. It's very, very hard or impossible in most cases to restore a factory finish um, to, to any watch case. You can certainly make it better than factory. Uh, but I would say the, the first thing I look at most of the time is the condition of the case. All right. The dial is a close second for me, and it's the first for most collectors. Um, maybe it's just because I've been doing this so long uh, that uh, I put preference to the case. I, I would say that part of the thing that people need to suspend disbelief on is that there are a lot of parts, particularly in the vintage Rolex, Hoyer, or Omega worlds, that uh, they're assembled using all genuine parts, but they're sort of, you, you, you take a great dial here, a great case there, a great bezel there, and there's nothing wrong with that, provided they are authentic and correct. Uh, again, they're not serial numbered. It's when you find something that's absolutely magnificent and has every desirable feature and, oh, we pulled it out of a barn last week and no one's ever seen it. Yeah. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. You know, sort of uh, use your best judgment. If it's too good to be true, it often is. Yep. But in short, frankly, you can replace a dial. You can't replace a yeah. case. And uh, your personal preferences, what, what is it you're always on the lookout for? Oh. Please you most. Um, frankly, all, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I tend to binge collect. Uh, so when I'm into something, I buy many multiples. Um, right now, I'm having a bunch of my Hoyer Camaros uh, tuned up and restored, which uh, I'm looking forward to getting those back. I'm always on the lookout for cool 60s and 70s divers. Mm. Um, I did just purchase a, a Rolex Submariner, which doesn't sound terribly unusual, uh, but I, I do throw my preference at the GMT Masters, my favorite Rolex uh, model. However, I was recently presented with the opportunity to buy this uh, red Submariner. So a, a reference 1680 red sub uh, with the red Submariner print on the dial from its original owner. Oh, wow. It was a submariner. Oh, so wow. I got a submariner yeah. from a submariner. That was yeah. pretty cool. Uh, he had uh, read about our, our company online, uh, found this watch that he had purchased in 1976 while he was in the U.S. Navy, mm. serving on the uh, ballistic missile submarine USS James Madison, which was actually operating out of Scotland, Holy Lock, Scotland. Oh, right. And was involved in a... I probably waved to it at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he was... Interestingly, that submarine was involved in a near miss with a uh, with a Russian hunter killer in 1974 wow. they actually they actually collided and it almost started World War three wow. and so he had bought this watch while he was serving on the submarine and then never really wore it after the, his time in the Navy so he called us up and he sent some some pictures of it over the internet and I said you know I've really got to see this thing yeah. would you send it up and he did and for me although I'm not much of a personal submariner guy, I saw this watch and I saw it as a token of, uh, you know, that, that story. Yeah. And frankly, it could have been anything. But once I got him on the phone and heard his story about his time in the Navy buying the watch through a, uh, through a supply vessel, yeah. they, they would hop onto the supply vessel and buy cigarettes and candy. Yeah. And uh, one day he said, oh, they had a sign that said Rolexes. Yeah. So he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm on a submarine i'm making all this money and i have no place to spend it so let's uh, i'm going to buy myself a watch i'm a submariner so that that one says what i do on the dial yeah let's order it so he ordered it through the uh, ship supply catalog and received it at sea yeah 
And that story just got me. Yeah. So I think I'm always on the lookout for a good story. Yeah. That really moves me. That's a great story. And uh, one that touches me. Amazing to think that that watch was uh, just out in the Clyde Estuary, which, uh, you know, very close to where I grew up. Yeah. And uh, I, I actually had a, a regular driver that I had in Moscow, of all places, and he used to be in the, in the Russian Navy. He was a submariner. Mm. And I asked him if he'd ever been to Scotland. And he said, I've looked at it a few times. <laughs> right? So he was up in the periscope, probably, you know, right. who knows, maybe looking at the officer that, uh, uh, that was uh, wearing that watch. So, uh, great story. Can you tell us the value of it? Um, well, I've been offered an awful lot. Uh, I would say this one's probably somewhere in the twenty-five dollars to $35,000 right. range, yeah, yep. depending on the buyer. It does have, uh, in this case, an unpolished case, which means it's a bit, a bit beat up. Yep. Uh, the bezel has a, a ghosting to yep. it um, that comes just from exposure to sun and, and whatnot. Dial's pretty fantastic. I kept the crystal that was on it when I got it. I kept it there, uh, and it's a bit scratched up, but I like it that way. And it came with uh, it came with punched papers, which was kind of neat. But yep. no box, and the bracelet that was on it had been uh, disassembled by means of uh, pliers, I think. So it had been uh, tweaked with a bit. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really interesting little little story. Yeah, and a great, great story and a great watch. It looks great on you. Oh, thanks. I've got to say so. <laughs> so that uh, there's your story. How you bought that one? Any tips you'd give our listeners if they were uh, setting out to to buy their first vintage watches? What would be the the things you would tell them to look for? Yeah, or um, where to look? Well, I mean, I think that. Uh, it's really the information, it's the advice you hear all the time, but you just have to keep drilling at home, which yep. is um, do a lot of research, talk to a lot of people, try on the watches because what looks good on paper does not always feel good on the wrist. Yep. And, you know, and on the opposite, I've looked at watches and pictures and had no interest whatsoever and then put one on and it, oh God, changed my life. Uh, first time I put on a Royal Oak Jumbo, I knew I was totally screwed. Yep. You know, that changed my life. Yeah. Totally incredible watch to wear. Never did it for me in the pictures. Yeah. Uh, so experience uh, as many watches as you can, handle as many as you can, learn about as much as you can, and then uh, buy from someone you can trust. So buy the seller before you buy the watch. Very significant uh, in, in your business as well, in the modern yeah. business. It's so important to have a dealer you can trust. Um, and then with vintage, you know, you really want to do two things. You want to buy the best condition you can. That doesn't necessarily mean perfect condition. It means what condition do you want? Don't make an exception. Don't buy a yes, but watch. With, yep. You don't want that qualifier. Oh, it's nice, but it's got this problem. And overpay for the watch. And that's advice I take all the time myself. Yep. Uh, with the market moving the way it is, with the investment uh, potential of the, of the wristwatch, vintage wristwatch market, the best thing you can do is overpay. And of course, that's a very personal decision as to what degree or percentage you want to overpay, but overpay for something great. And by the time you're done worrying, if you've overpaid, yep. it'll be worth more. Yep. So that is the one thing I, I, I listened to all the, the podcasts you've done so far. And uh, I've heard some great things with a, with a thread of history running throughout the entire run so far. Uh, but it's the one thing I'll disagree with Mr. Dowling on. Uh, I do believe that when done thoughtfully, vintage watches are absolutely a solid investment. investment yeah. And don't get me wrong, when I started 
collecting. There was sort of a conventional wisdom. Buy with your heart and you'll never be upset. And yep. I love it. It's beautiful. It's great. What a fantastic idea. Wonderful sentiment. But when you're spending five or 10 or 30 or 130 or 330 or $17 million on a watch, you better be thinking a little bit with your brain as well yep. as your heart. Yep. And even if it's uh, possibly a loss for you down the line, shouldn't be but if it was you should still know how much of a loss yep. you know if you're if you're uh, looking to invest in watches purely which is something we do also assist with there are some really great ways to do it whether you're looking at short to long-term results the best part about watches as an investment is you can also wear and enjoy the hell out of them yep yep and exactly how I feel about guitars which I keep mentioning yeah you can you enjoy play them. playing them and uh, you enjoy having them and it's a, They're also a lot similar. less, both guitars and watches are a hell of a lot less expensive to uh, keep yeah. and run than cars. Yeah. Uh, which, and store. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. That's probably the biggest reason I did watches, not cars. Is in Manhattan, where, where, where I live, you can put 40 watches in your nightstand, but yeah. putting two cars in a local garage will uh, bankrupt anybody. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's obviously a great uh, investment business, just knowing how successful and rich that you now are in these beautiful offices that we're in here. <laughs> I won't tell you're you about the, the fact that the, the elevator example. you took up here uh, periodically lights on fire, but you know, we'll, we'll, yep. we'll cross that bridge when it, uh, when it burns down. So uh, we're, we're delighted also to be, uh, to be working with you now directly. We're opening our first big showroom here in, in New York in just a few days time in the Incredibly Green exciting. Street down in Soho. Have you seen the outside of the building? Have you seen it? I have. Yep. I have. Yeah. And I can't wait to, uh, to get in there. It's, it's, I think it's wonderful that the uh, that you guys are making this move to the U.S. I think that the U.S. market needs uh, in the contemporary watches uh, needs to be throttled a bit uh, by the throat and shaken to uh, improve themselves. So uh, I've for many years stopped in your stores in the U.K. and was thrilled to hear that you're coming to my town. Good, thanks. Hopefully, shake them some things up and and truly honored to be working with you guys on the vintage side as well. Well, and we share that one. I'm actually delighted that, uh, that we're working together. It's going to be a great store, uh, Green Street, beautiful old cobblestoned uh, street, beautiful old townhouse uh, down there. We get something like 100 people in there at the moment. I can't imagine what it's like still swinging hammers and you know putting power on and off. But uh, within the next uh, week or so, the beautiful store will open. Uh, met all of our team last night who are super trained and enthusiastic and, uh, and willing to go. Uh, ready to go. Um, but an important part of it, the collaboration that we're going to do together, going to be a beautiful presentation there of uh, Analog Shift for Watches of Switzerland. So let's take a look at a few of the watches that you've got for us. Yeah, I just pulled a few out uh, just to play with here. We've got sort of a, a small cross-section of some of the pieces that we'll be supplying uh, for you guys. And uh, we've, got, we've got representative examples from Hoyer, Omega, Rolex, Breitling, uh, even some early pre-war Hamilton that I'm particularly fond of, Tudor. Um, I think that the collection we've built you out, which is 45, 50 pieces strong just yep. for, for the launch, uh, is a pretty representative sample of some of the stuff we're into. And the price range of it will yeah, be? Yeah, it's going to range from just a couple thousand dollars up until the low $20,000 range yep. for, for your store. Yep. Um, but some really neat stuff. Um, the icons, of course, yep. the date Justs and Submariners and GMT Masters. The one you have in your hand there is a personal favorite. The, yeah, the, the root beer, beer. Yeah. Yeah. which is just reborn this year from yep. uh, Rolex and Basel. 
that, that particular one dates to the late 70s. Uh, interestingly, it was one of the first models to be fitted with a quick set date mechanism. All right. Uh, sunburst yep. uh, round dial with the little uh, so-called nipple markers. Yep. And a two-tone insert on the on the bezel. I, I actually the, the, the two-tone oyster was never my thing yep. for the Jubilee, but it's growing on me. Oh yeah. And that one, although I just said to the contrary, that one actually comes with box and papers. All right. That's a watch that uh, I have sort of known intimately for a while. Yep. And uh, I had the opportunity to buy it and sell it a few times to different collector buddies. Yep. And uh, it was actually a last-minute addition to the collection when the previous owner called me up and said, hey, I think I'm thinking about making a move on a different watch. Would you buy this from me? And I said, absolutely. Yeah. You said, I know the place I can show I know this. the place yeah. it's going. Yeah, that, that yeah. watch is going to make somebody very happy. I yeah. Think. And as, as, as the interest in the original root beer hugely sure. increased. Big, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I thought I was very clever years ago by yeah. picking the two-tone, unusual-looking 70s Clint Eastwood watches yeah. uh, to start collecting. And uh, I mean, perhaps I was, but... Boy, that uh, that market really exploded this year in particular. Yep, is that a black dial? Yeah, I'm just looking at it under the. It's brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's very very cool. What else we got here? We got a Navitimer. That is actually uh, a reference eight zero nine. So it's a Navitimer Cosmonaut. Oh, wow. So it's a twenty four hour movement and dial. That yep. was uh, again. It always comes down to story for me. This is a watch that was basically developed for astronauts. Who don't experience night and day while in space. Yep. So it's a Navitimer, but with uh, with a, a different mechanism to run twenty four hour. Yep. Kind of value you'd put on that? Huh? What sort of value would you put oh, on that? Oh, that guy. Like, yeah. I mean, you're looking at probably in the uh, seven to eight thousand dollar range. Yep. Yeah. Really nice example. Yep. Yep. And you get some nice uh, Omega here too. Yeah. That that one. That was a very lucky find. I have truly and honestly never seen one that nice. Yeah. That is a Seamaster one twenty. It is. It stands out because it's a thin manual winding diver, sort of yep. skin diver looking watch, yep. even with the period uh, tropic strap on it. And that one is probably in near museum grade quality. Yep. I, most of these I've had are completely trashed, faded bezels, polished cases. This one is you could shave with that case. Yeah, it's that beautiful. came from a, a collector who's uh, in the business. I won't give him away, but he's in the business uh, of watches in Geneva. As it, but came from his personal collection. Comes with an extract of the uh, from the Omega archives as well. Yep. And is this was the original strap like that or Yeah, this yep. is probably not the original given that it's still yep. very supple, but it's the yep. original style. Yeah. All right. Yep. It's uh, it's gorgeous. It'll probably my aesthetically probably be my favorite of a uh, very of what simple you have here. Yep. iconic look. Yep. The Hoyer, the, the Hoyer Camaro is my personal yeah, favorite from the for the case shape, the golden era yeah. of, of chronograph design. Yeah, it's, it was a very short-lived model. I spoke with uh, Jack Hoyer about this when I met him a few years back, which was really a wonderful experience. And it was maybe the saddest part uh, of this of the '60s lineup because it was introduced in '68, yeah. and then of course in '69 the caliber 11 came out. Uh, with the Octavia and the Monaco and totally changed the conversation about yep. Hoyer. But this was sort of that last gasp at a thin, you know, small manual winding watch. Yep. Belgiu movement, triple register design here with a black dial that is truly uh, gone chocolate or tropical. Yeah. Um, beautiful watch, 37 millimeter, yep. you know, sort of semi-square case. What was, what was it, Mark? How did Mark describe the... 
the, the squound. It's squound, yes. Squound yes. case, yeah. Square yeah. case with rounded edges. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a little unusual looking, but put that watch on, it is the most comfortable thing in the yeah. world. Yeah, I mean, I think that case shape is really coming back. Yeah. Actually, I think, and I, I get a great example of people vintage inspired new watches and uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and that shape is well and you know tag voyeur is, is doing a fantastic job with that yeah um even involving the community and, and helping and letting them pick you know some of the new design yeah. cues on the on the new octavia uh the cultra probably leads the pack and i think they sort of kicked it off in a way with the uh the tribute to 1931 Reverso, which I'm sure is still a bestseller. Yep. Um, they did the Polaris and DC yeah, the, Alarm issues the a while back. Yep. The Memovox, the, the, the Geophysic most recently. Yep. Um, it's definitely a thing yep. and a wonderful thing. Yeah, a wonderful thing that brings it all together. And I think people who love vintage watches, love new watches, you know, yeah, like Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, one little nugget of, of wisdom that I've learned about vintage watches in general is that they are sort of the point of entry and the ultimate expression of a right. watch collector. Yep. Um, they're a point of entry because they allow someone to buy a, a name brand watch oftentimes at a lesser value or yep. lesser price than their new uh, counterpart. Um, and then you become a collector, you become enthusiastic, you start buying uh, newer watches, maybe some higher end watches, some boutique limited editions, some special yep. editions from watches of Switzerland. Maybe you custom, maybe you you customize something from from Bamford, or you order a a one of one piece from an independent. But at the end of the day, if you want the ultimate exclusivity, I think it's vintage because yep. each one of these has their own character and expression. And so for me, it's the vintage is both the beginning yep. and the sort of ultimate expression of the collector yep. uh, mindset. So it starts at a thousand bucks or so and can finish up with a Paul Newman Daytona at uh, yeah. 17 million or a Henry Graves. <laughs> super complication. Super complication. Yeah, it started, it started for me with a $275 Seiko. Yep. Uh, it was my first vintage purchase. Um, it was a total mess. Bought yep. it on eBay from the Philippines. Word of, yep. word of wisdom, don't do that. <laughs> uh, but it did, uh, I kept it as, yep. a, as a memento of what not to do. Yep. But, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful hobby, and yep. you know, find somebody you can trust. There's some great dealers out there uh, who do fantastic work in in locating these things. Yeah, it's part treasure hunter, part wheeler dealer, you know, and yep. it's uh, it's fun. It's fun, but I think with analog shift, we simply wanted to create a platform um, of sustainability, and that's really our, been our goal. It was never supposed to be James's vintage watches. It was supposed to be a sort of a hive. Yeah. of enthusiastic passionate people to come and share knowledge and that's what we've been doing for the last six six plus years and now it's truly uh, a privilege to be working with a leader in the field in the in the in, in your space and and grow with you uh as you move into the u.s yeah i'll be there we're thrilled by it uh you've got a great reputation you know we did another uh, podcast as you know with uh, george bamford and i know that he'd regularly buys from you and uh, thinks very, very highly of everything that you do. So very proud to be working with you. Really uh, uh, great to speak with you. You clearly love what you do. You've got a smile on your face the whole time as you talk about watches, <laughs> yeah. which, uh, which is always a great sign. And uh, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming in and, and spending the time to chat about this. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, and I think that's probably the best part of the watch business is that it's uh, just good people.
Yeah, great people. We look forward to getting to know you better over the uh, years ahead. Likewise. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Calibre Podcast. As always, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're now also available on Spotify, as well as all the usual places you listen to your podcasts.